Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. This week I'm talking to Karima Moyanaki about her new book, The Eternal Table. The subtitle is A Cultural History of Food in Rome. And Rome's actually a perfect place for this kind of look back at food. Its relationship to food goes back to its very beginnings. Virgil tells the story of Aeneas, who escapes from Troy, gets to Carthage, and then heads off to an unknown shore. And in the background, all along, there's been a prophecy given to his father. A modern version says, When you're carried to an unknown shore, food is lacking, and you're forced to eat the tables. Then look for a home in your weariness. He arrives with his um, motley crew. They're really exhausted. They're really hungry. They need to have a meal. So they prepare their meal, and they're eating off basically what are bread trenchers. They finish the meal, and what happens is then that they're so hungry, they eat the trenchers. John Dryden, in the 17th century, put it this way. Ascanius, that's Aeneas' son, Ascanius this observed and smiling said, See, we devour the plates on which we fed. The speech had omen that the Trojan race should find repose, and this the time and place. And Aeneas is watching what's happening, and he says, Oh my goodness, this is the, the, the realization of the prophecy that when we arrive in the place that is to be our homeland, we are going to be so hungry that we eat our plates. The rest is history, or rather myth. One thing leads to another, and Romulus, supposedly a direct descendant of Aeneas on his mother's side, founds the city of Rome. Rome develops a food culture, and 2,000 years later, a Roman invents fettuccine Alfredo. It may all be a myth, but it does rather suggest that the history of Rome and the history of food are going to be really closely entwined. So, the Eternal City, a fitting subject to study the Eternal Table. But what exactly does eternal mean? I think it means unchanging. But Karima has a different view. For her, what's eternal about Rome and its tables is an idea of timelessness. Rome is timeless and has been considered timeless in that way. And yet, at the same time, there is a, a long history of food that has a lot of disruption. Something comes in, changes the way things are, and they can never go back to what they were before. And that's the eternal part. But we we push against change, particularly with cities like Rome, where we want to have this feeling of continuity. Um, it gives us a sense of meaning and purpose. And, and yet the uh, fascinating and traceable aspect of this is the change. What happens, though, is that change goes on, and those changes then become our, our traditions. You can, you can see as far back as, um, as Pliny, Pliny and Cato railing on about, um, about losing traditions. And they're so worried about losing traditions. So it's 
it's an eternal truth that people will always rail against the fading away of traditions. One of the things they were complaining about was the sort of soft, effete, um, urban, upper-class Roman who wanted all this novelty, who wasn't content with the food that the army marched on effectively. Right. So um, because they were they were softening up and they sort of blamed this also as well on the on the Etruscans. They saw in the way they lived and the way they um, they they ate. There's got to be something in that that brings about this uh, this superior culture. So it's a sort of very early, if, if the Etruscans were great because of what the Etruscans ate, it's a sort of very early, you are what you eat. So what, what were the Etruscans eating that the Romans admired? There was a central starch staple with accompaniments, and that seems so obvious to us now. Center to that is this food called pools, which is ground emmer, and it was toasted, ground, made into a gruel, um, and, and that was sort of the central idea of the Roman meal. And we associate, though, so much with the, these ideas of these um, uh, Hollywood films of the great Roman banquets. They're stuffing themselves and going and throwing up. Um, but actually, the valued food was this thing called pools. Is that where we get the word pulse from? It's, it's related to that, yes, pools, because it was also then any kind of, became any kind of ground up thing that was made into a gruel. Okay, so that's the basic Roman virtuous meal mm -hmm. is your pools with bits and pieces on the side. And Cato and Pliny and others were railing against the idea that you were eating, I don't know, lark's tongues in aspic or whatever it was that... Was it just kind of status that people were eating more and more exotic, more and more different things and abandoning this, this, this salt-of-the-earth meal? Um, yes, also because of what was going on in, on the aristocratic level. There was a separation of who ate what and all very much distinguished so at, at the higher levels, you needed to eat certain kinds of food um, that showed the kind of person that you were. And it got to be so exaggerated um, that they had to set up laws, different laws, which were basically early sumptuary laws, to keep that kind of under control because you couldn't be a good Roman citizen and serve um, pools with a nice a, a dish of, of vegetables on the side um, while your neighbor is serving baked peacock stuffed with uh, dormice. <laughs> so. Um, so you mentioned the Hollywood movies, the, the, the sort of feasting and Nero and all the rest of that nonsense. And, culminating, I guess, in that wonderful satirical banquet of Trimalchio. I'm trying to get a sense of whether that was uh, um, admired by some and only disparaged by kind of the old farts, or was it disparaged by most people and only admired by a few nouveau riches? Um, I think that you weren't really allowed to admire it. What you have, though, you, you do have people complaining, like um, Marshall, who 
complains because of his level as a um, as a client, and he's he's going to his patron's home. I get to eat, you know, this sort of magpie. Meanwhile, you have lark, and I'm eating old um, mushroom, old fungi, while you have certain sorts of uh, really elevated mushrooms from someplace else. Um, so there is that comparison of what's going on, but um, no one actually coming out and saying that these are fabulous foods. If anything, the writing and the people who are writing about it are saying, we've got to go back to our old time traditions. Did food in Rome start to decline, as it were, with the decline of, of the empire and the, and the republic? This is a, a very difficult area because um, there are so many sources, literary sources, though, in ancient Rome. So a lot of information, and then suddenly, after the, the, um, the sack of Rome and the rise of Christianity, you go into an extreme literary dark age. There isn't another book coming out of Rome for another 1,000 years. So, and that would be go going from Apicius to um, Maestro Martino, 1465. It really is anyone's guess about how you make the leap from the ingredients and things that are, are part of Apicius, um, the great agriculturalists, and that first cookbook. But it's a leap we're going to make anyway. <laughs> to try and discover what an up-and-coming cardinal might serve at a special dinner. Maestro Martino was the cook to a cardinal infamous for his sumptuous banquets. His book, De Arte Coquinaria, The Art of Cooking, is sometimes called the first cookbook. And remarkably, it contains only four recipes for pasta dishes. Now, that could be, as Karima says, that pasta's a no-brainer and that nobody needed recipes. Or it could be that pasta was common stuff, not fit for a cardinal. In any case... You're starting off with a sideboard. These are things that people could sit down and nibble on before the warm dishes came out of the kitchen. You had the, the kitchen service dishes. Okay, um, a dish on the sideboard might be a dish like erbolatum, which is a basically a pie with um, ricotta cheese and a bit of honey. Myriad herbs are in this. It's baked and then expected to be served cold on the sideboard. Sounds delicious. It, it is delicious. I've made it. Okay. And so we eat our herbalatum and myriad other things from the sideboard. Then we sit down at the table and the warm dishes come out of the kitchen. Let's look at Maestro Martino. He has these four pasta dishes, okay? One of them is called a macaroni alla, alla romana. Interesting that he's using the word macaroni. Uh, and then something alla romana while he's in Rome. So he's specifically pointing to a certain way that they're eating this. Now, it is a flour and water pasta. It's cooked in broth. And when I make it, 
I cook it in a relatively shallow amount of broth because you take it out, put it onto a plate that's got butter, and then um, you put your sweet spices on it, which which basically I think very is very much like pumpkin spice. Um, you you put that on butter, cheese, and so and it goes on onto the table. You said macaroni. It's interesting that he calls it macaroni. Does he say what shape it should be? Yes, it's rolled out. It's a dough that's rolled out. He specifically says then to roll it up onto a pin, pull the pin out, and to cut it into um, slices that are no wider than your finger. So what we're getting here is to the, uh, the Roman fettuccine. Fettuccine, which, which means little ribbons. Sounds okay. Um, it sounds a bit like something my granny used to make me when I wasn't feeling well, of noodles with cinnamon and sugar and butter, um, which was pretty good. Well, something terribly interesting about this dish is that nearly the same thing is written in um, the form of curry. It came out in England in 1390 and is the, the first recorded recipe of this pasta dish. But if you think about the interesting aspect of that date, in 1300 you have the first jubilee year when Rome be officially becomes part of the pilgrimage itinerary. Another one in 1350, and then this book is written in 1390. So given the amount of time that a recipe needs to establish itself, um, terribly interesting that it's written in England first, this same recipe where you have a thin homemade tagliatelle, butter, cheese, etc., um, the etc. varies. Can we move that then into fettuccine Alfredo? There's a question. Let's put that question to one side for a minute and say when does this sort of late medieval shade into the Renaissance with uh, all the changes of the new world coming in then, the, 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 the arrival of the tomato, whenever it was, is I think, it's, uh, to me, it's kind of essential to this idea of what you call the eternal table and what I call the changeable table, because, of course, a lot of Italians, a lot of non-Italians, cannot imagine Italian food without a tomato. Right, and that's the aspect of timelessness, um, of how we create a, a concept of how a food works um, or what a food's history is according to a collective idea, the idea that we want to have about that food, that the tomato has always existed, that Italians have always eaten pasta, and that it has always been um, part of the Italian culinary identity to eat pasta and pizza, whose popularity is actually both very recent. And yet, I mean, this, this comes back always to this idea of people railing against forgotten traditions, because nobody, nobody now is saying we have to give up the tomato. Exactly. Right. Um, so how long does something have to be in the culture before it is the tradition against which new things are judged? Um, I mean, I can say also from a, not a technical, but a, a, an official point of view that 
in order to be considered a traditional food officially by Europe, you only have to demonstrate 25 years of, of continuous use um, in a sp specific way, in a specific area. And, and that's a very short period of time. And of course, the, the crowning example of that is the carbonara. Carbonara is not timeless? <laughs> No, actually, the first time that it's mentioned as carbonara um, is in in um, in the newspaper La Stampe in 1950. It comes out again in 1954. Looking at if we want to take a, a Elizabeth David, uh, which many people use her as a reference, um, and in, in 19. 57, she is still calling that macaroni with ham and, ham and cheese. So that idea and the concept had not solidified yet. And it, and it goes through a lot of different phases before it becomes what we consider now carbonara and the timeless carbonara that we think dates back to the ancients. But hang on, <laughs> Elizabeth David, is she calling other dishes? I mean, I don't, she probably doesn't have pasta la norma or anything like that. But is, is this... Is this something for English readers, and she has other dishes where they can be presumed to know what she's talking about, or is it, or is it specific to pasta with ham and cheese? Um, that's an interesting choice as well about which dishes get translated and which dishes have a name. So the naming of dishes comes actually quite late. She's also trying to appeal to a, um, a public it's very ignorant of Italian food and suspicious of it. Mm. So, yeah. Because I, I mean, I just find it fascinating when you go into a restaurant and they give you an English translation and it says pasta la norma and it says pasta in norma style and you think, well, okay, I'm none the wiser. <laughs> right. Um, you mentioned pasta Alfredo. Um, I think some people might not know what pasta Alfredo is and they might not know the story behind it. So, so why don't you enlighten me on that? Um, fettuccine Alfredo is an outrageously... A, 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 one of those dishes that in the United States, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't know what an Alfredo is. Alfredo started in Italy um, with a guy named Alfredo in... Um, 1920, I want to say 1924. The story is that Alfredo's wife was, I have it from my source in my book, she was pregnant and not able to keep anything down. But when I spoke to the owner of the restaurant, he said, no, she had already delivered a child. And this was part of getting her to, to, to recover from, from the, uh, the d delivery. So he makes this dish for her, which is um, pasta with butter, cheese, and all kind of mixed together, and, and, and so making it very creamy. Then you get... Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, who go into Alfredo's restaurant while they are on their honeymoon in Rome, they eat the dish and are so amazed by its wonderfulness that they, they go back to the United States and apparently are telling all of their famous VIP friends who then need to come to Rome and have this, have this dish. 
So what happens then is that it becomes very famous and you get these this fork and spoon that Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks come back with a fork and spoon that say, to Alfredo, king of the noodles, or some such sort of thing. <laughs> and they're, they're gold. Huge fork and spoon. Okay. Alfredo then, in the 40s, sells up. He becomes a, a partigiano, fighting against uh, Mussolini. He sells up to his waiters, and they take over the restaurant. Meanwhile, he comes back then 10 years later, starts up his own restaurant, and is selling his Fettuccine Alfredo again um, in a restaurant that he's calling Vero Alfredo or the True Alfredo. He has his children, they take it over, and the feud begins between Alfredo alla scroffa, which had been sold to his waiters where they make that dish, and the Vero Alfredo, the True Alfredo. The True Alfredo, however, because the original Alfredo sold his, his business lock, stock, and barrel, they have the golden fork and spoon. So they buy, the other ones buy their own fork and spoon. They clearly enter into some sort of litigious um, situation. Alfredo Alascrofa is forced to take off the, scrape off the inscription or have it filled in or something that says Alfredo the, the, the king of the noodles. Uh, and, and, and so this goes on. Is the recipe the same in both places? The recipe is the same in both places. And Alfredo Ascrofa, anyway, says that they are the original. And, and I asked him, well, how is it that you can sort of be the original of something that dates back to and has been recorded as far back in England then as 1390? And it is just tagliatelle with, with butter and um, cheese. And so he explains to me that it's not just that. It's the way that they mix it all together. It gets put on a plate and mixed in a certain sort of way, which you can see on YouTube, um, how they maneuver that golden fork and spoon. And what's really interesting from a sociological point of view is the vehemence with which they maintain that this is their tradition. This is a Roman tradition. Romans do not go to this restaurant. And so I, I went to the restaurant and was given the complete VIP treatment where I signed the, the guest book. And I was allowed to eat with the golden fork and spoon. And how was it? Perhaps the problem is that I sat and took pictures, as one does, and then it did congeal into a, a sort of mass that you couldn't twir twirl around your fork. So um, the pasta was, is very thin, very soft, and there's an awful lot of sauce on it. Mm. So, but but the restaurant was was full of people, particularly the bus tour buses that come, and the walls are in, encrusted with photographs of famous people, uh, Hollywood stars, some of which are actually signed to Alfredo of this was the best pasta I've ever had, etc. Some things truly are eternal. 
Karima Moyanoki's book is called The Eternal Table, A Cultural History of Food in Rome, and there's loads more in it than we could possibly have discussed in a single episode. She also has a website at theeternaltable.com where you can follow along with her efforts to recreate the eternal classics. I'm heartened by the fact that Rome owes its foundation to a bunch of immigrants, and now, if you want to eat at an eternal Roman table, you'll find that most of the kitchen staff are immigrants too, and from much further afield than old Aeneas. That's it for this episode. My thanks to everyone who supports the show with a donation. You can also support me by leaving a rating, preferably a good one, wherever you get your podcasts. Or just tell a friend. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, but for now, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.